Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. We're going to look at the saints' message. We're going to look at saints' unity. We're going to look at saints and morality. We're going to look at uh, saints and singleness and marriage. And and we're going to work through all of this. We're excited about it, but please grab a chapter breakdown and, and you can see exactly how we're going to work through this series. I, I did send out an email for those of you guys who are on our email list. If not, you can sign up on one of the Connect cards and put your name on the email list as well. So that's it. We're going to be diving in today. Like I said, slow start, getting the intro, getting the foundation for the book of 1 Corinthians, for this letter and what exactly is going on here and who exactly Paul is. And so we're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at who Paul is. We're going to look at who Jesus Christ is. We're going to look at uh, what, what Corinth is. And then we're also going to look at what it looks like as saints as our identity. What it looks like for the word saint and for sainthood to be our identity. So let's pray as we dive in here. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And I pray that, that we would slow down right now. with crazy weeks and busy weeks and crazy mornings with kiddos and everything else going on, Father, it is difficult to, to come with ready hearts to hear. And so we're asking right now that you would ready our hearts to hear and to listen and to receive what your word has to say. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your word and for the treasure that it is that teaches us about you and that ultimately shows us what your gospel is. I pray for everyone in here who already knows the gospel that they would have a deeper awe and reverence and just worship for the gospel and Lord for who you are and what you've done. I pray for anyone here that doesn't believe that, that they would be um, open to hear this morning exactly who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. I pray that you are the hero of our time. I pray you are the hero of this sermon, and I pray that you would empower me through your spirit to help me preach your word faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the main point of this morning's sermon is this, saints, not sinners. Saints, not sinners. So the main point is that you can write that down. You can remember that as saints, not sinners. We get this word saint from the second verse in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's, a, it's an epistle, which means it's a letter. It's an occasional letter. And what an occasional letter means is that Paul was writing to an occasion. What we see here is this word in Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, saints appears. What does saints mean? It comes from the Greek word that means uh, hagios. That's how you pronounce it. But actually what it means is this, set apart. So what a saint is, is someone who is set apart or a holy one. So when Paul uses this term saint, he means those that are set apart and those that are the holy ones. We'll get more into that in a minute. But the reason why this morning's main point is saints, not sinners, is because this, is that what we believe about ourselves and our identity, about who we are, and even more so whose we are, affects how we daily live our lives. And unless we understand at at the core, which is Paul is trying to do this at the beginning of this letter, he's trying to take them to the core of their identity, the core foundation of who they are, and unless at the core we believe that we are saints, then oftentimes we will believe that our nature is sinners and therefore we will live more out of that instead of what it looks like to live out of being a saint. 
Now, if you don't, if you're here and you're a new Christian or you're a non-Christian, then uh, typically in our culture we don't like the word sinners, and, and, and so we've tried to find other words to use, but that is the word that Bible that our Bibles use, and, and I would say this, that from, uh, from birth we have a sin nature. So from birth we are born with this sin nature. And if you don't believe that, then let me take you through a little bit of a journey to my daughter's first week of kindergarten and her second week when I joined her for lunch on the kindergarten playground. If you don't believe that we are born with a sinful nature, just do yourself a favor. Sign up for recess sometime for kindergartners and just go watch. And you can see for yourself that, that we are born with this sinful nature. I mean, it was chaos. Come, come. I, was, I was having a hard time even staying focused because it, the homeschoolers in here are like, amen. That's why we're homeschooling. Uh, and it was chaos. And, and, and I was just like, where do we go from here? There's one kid running over here and there's one kid screaming that they're being bullied and there's just kids running to the teacher and I, I was telling my wife, I was like, I just don't think there's enough people out here to manage this. And I'm like, do these, do these kids all come from homes where their parents teach them to hit if you want something? I would say not and here's why. Even ye- yesterday or the day before, my youngest took something from my oldest. It was like a trekking pole or something like that. She took it and she ran away with it. And so my oldest takes off after her. And then the younger one knows what's coming, so she just throws it and then she points to it. But on the way by, my oldest grabs her trekking pole she has in her hand. She goes, boom, and just hits her in the gut with it. My wife has never done that to me. (laughs) Ever. Like, like, I've never wanted something or taken something from her and her response was just, boom, right in the gut. We don't teach them that. Our kids bite. Our youngest, I've told you guys that before, she's a biter. That didn't come from something we've taught her. Our kids are selfish. Our kids, yes, our kids, the pastor's kids flail on the ground like fish out of water throwing tantrums. Why? Because we do that? No. (laughs) No. It's because from... (laughs) I'm like trying to reassure myself. I'm like, do we do that? (laughs) We don't. It's because we have this sinful nature that we're born with that, that, that is at enmity with God. It means it is against God. It doesn't want to do the very will of God from birth. It wants to do our very own thing. And so what I do, and I've told this to our church before, what I try to do is this. Before that I know that, that my children are saved by the grace of God and that I can point them to what it is to be a child of God, what I do is, is every night I ask them a very simple question. I say, why does dad love you? And my hope is that they respond like this, is because we're your daughter. In other words, the foundation for their love is not because of something that they do for me. The foundation of my love for them is because of who they are. Never because of what they do. And what we are driven by in life is often driven by what we believe about ourselves and what our core identity is. And so I want my daughters to know what it is to live as a loved child of their father. That at the end of the day, whether they jab someone with a trekking pole or not, whether they're good or bad, whatever they do, that it does not change their core identity. And I think that, believe firmly, that is actually what has the impact to change how we live our lives. So let's start here. Verse 1 with Paul. Let's pause there.
Paul. What do we know about Paul? What do we know about this Paul fella? Well, let me give a few minutes unpacking Paul and then give more minutes to unpacking Jesus Christ. Is What we know about Paul is Paul was not a warm name for first century Christians at all. To say the name Paul could have conjured up a lot of fear inside of someone because of what he was known for and what he was capable of. But what else do we know about Paul before we dive into some of that is that Paul grew up in, 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 a, in a practicing Jewish home in the university town of Tarsus. He was a Jewish man, but he was also a Roman citizen. And he would have been a Roman citizen because his father was a Roman citizen. We know that Paul, despite of what some drawings tell us, that Paul was not a physical specimen by any means. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10.10, they say they're like, man, you're, 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 and I'm paraphrasing, but your writings are strong, but your physical appearance is not much. And then the Acts of Paul, which is a book that, uh, that was not, uh, and that is not in our Bible, that came out uh, a couple hundred years later, actually describes Paul like this, okay? A man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. That's... I've seen pictures of Paul where he's like this tall, skinny, European-looking guy. It's like This is like Jewish George Costanza is how the Acts of Paul would describe him here. You have to, if you picture this, it's more of a shorter but yet Jewish man. We'll get to how a lot of our modern art has uh, um, shaped the way that we even see Jesus apart from who he was as a Jewish man. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee and he was zealous for the law. Anything that opposed a Jewish law, Paul was zealous to go against. He's a zealous man. At some point, his family moved him from Tarsus to Jerusalem where he was trained by the rabbi Gamaliel. And we know this about Paul, is that Paul exceeded past those of his own age. Paul did not live by C's get degrees. He was highly educated, not just in the Hebrew Bible, which some believe that he actually not, uh, didn't just memorize the Torah, but memorized the entire Old Testament. Yet, we struggle to find time to read it. He was highly educated. Some would say that he had a, uh, the equivalent of two highly academic degrees. He spoke multiple language, languages, including Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. But he also did all this, and he worked a trade as a tent maker. You see, Greeks... The highly educated, they didn't work a trade. That was beneath them. But for a Jewish man, even a highly educated one, he learned and worked a trade as well. What else do we know about this Paul? All of his zeal led him to oppose and persecute Christians and Christianity because now all of a sudden there was this new religion that Paul saw. There was this Jesus Christ who was being exalted. He was being in worship. And Christianity was called the way. And so Paul took it upon himself to try to wipe the gospel and wipe Christianity from the face of the earth. In fact, he did not show partiality to women. He would have men and women arrested. He even casted his vote to have them executed. He was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul's name brought fear to first century Christians. Because he held power. His voice was strong. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that, that, that Saul's name was changed to Paul after his conversion in Acts 9, but that's not true. If you continue to read in Acts 9 all the way through Acts 13, 12, he continues with the name Saul because Saul was his Jewish name. 
And only when he started to reach out to the Gentiles did he go by the name of Paul because that was his Roman name. Was not his, his conversion did not change his name. He's still his Jewish name is Saul. His Roman name is Paul. Why is all this important about Paul? Not just fun facts you can quote to your friends. Three reasons. We should never count people out. We should never count people out from being able to be saved by the grace of God regardless of where they're at. Regardless of how far they've gone. Regardless of how radically extreme they are. We should never count people out. No one would have ever guessed that Paul would be an apostle for Jesus Christ. Number two is his credentials show us where his trust lies. You know that Paul has all these credentials and sometimes he even lists them, but for the most part, do you know what Paul says? That I didn't come to you with eloquent speech and lofty words. I came to you in a sense professing to know nothing besides Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Where Paul trusts is not in his credentials, not in his big degrees, not in his ability to hang with the big dogs. Paul says, I trust in the power of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. Last, I would say this, that God prepares people. And from before the foundations of the world, from the womb, God was preparing Paul for what he had for him and God prepares us for what he has for us. The hardships, the trials, the, the, the things that we go through in life, God uses it all to prepare us. And we see that because now Saul is able to reach Gentiles because of his education, because of everything that he's gone through. So there we go. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul. And then it says he's called by the will of God to be an apostle. Apostle is a Greek word spelt with English letters, which means official representative. So Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. What was an apostle? Apostle is an official representative, but they were used in the Supreme Court. So the Sanhedrin would actually use apostles. So whenever the Sanhedrin would get involved with uh, matters of Jewish law or tradition, the parties would come in and plead their case to them, and, and they would hear that. And then when the parties left, they would reach their verdict, and they would tell that verdict to the apostle. And the apostle, the official representative of the Sanhedrin, he would go, and he would tell that message to the parties. That meant that he actually spoke on behalf of the Supreme Court. That meant that he actually spoke on behalf of the Sanhedrin. That meant that he was an official representative of them. So he carried the voice and he carried the weight to actually speak not just my words, this is their words. And Paul is saying the same thing. These aren't my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ and ultimately this is God's word. That's how we start off. And then he says, and our brother Sosthenes. He's not saying that, uh, um, that he is an apostle, but we believe this is probably the same Sosthenes that we see in Acts 18 who is probably and likely the synagogue ruler because the other one got converted by Paul and then this one did too. So apparently Sosthenes carried some weight and some recognition amongst the, first Corinth, or, uh, um, among the Corinthians. And so Paul says, hey, this letter is written by me. I'm an apostle. And also it's backed by this Sosthenes man who you guys know. But let's address this. Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Here, here, here's what I want. J just to be real. Is that um, I, I want our... You're like, oh, you're going to tell us about Jesus Christ? We've been Christians for a long time. Is that uh, I'm going to teach you about Jesus more than what uh, Ricky Bobby says about uh, little baby Jesus. 
I want to teach you about Jesus more than, than what our, uh, um, a lot of modern-day paintings show of a, a, a Caucasian, blonde hair, flowing Jesus, because it's not accurate. And in fact, Dr. R.C. Sproul says that the early church spent the first 300 years reading John's prologue on Jesus. What is that? The first 18 verses in John. Like, in the beginning, the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They would read that, and they'd be like, let's start over. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Man, I don't understand that. And they spent 300 years even trying to make sense of the complexities of who Jesus Christ was. We will spend, listen, we will spend eternity never being able to exhaust an infinite God who is Jesus Christ. So we can give some time today to explore and understand some things about Jesus Christ and who He is and why Paul wants to represent Him and represent Him so well. First, let's start with His name. His name is not first name Jesus, last name Christ. Jesus, taken from the Hebrew word Yeshua, means to save, to rescue, to redeem. The word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. And so it's the anointed one or the Messiah who saves, who delivers, who rescues. That is the name most given to Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ, is is Messiah. Christ is how he's most often referred to in the New Testament. The second name that he's commonly referred to is Lord, which means Master. In the Old Testament, when you see L-O-R-D spelt out in capital letters, that is actually Yahweh. The third, which is the one, it comes in far last, but it's the one that Jesus most gave to himself as son of man, showing that he's actually the fulfillment of the one we see in Daniel who was seated, uh, who was seated on the throne. And so that's, we, we, we start with this name, Christ Jesus. Who else was Jesus. He was Jewish. He was a Jewish man born of Jewish descent from a Jewish family in a town called Bethlehem where he was raised after that in a town called Nazareth by a Jewish father named Joseph. He learned a trade. He worked for the first 27 to 30 years of his life working a trade. And then he lived his three-year mission toward the cross homeless with very little possessions to his name. He is a man who turned culture upside down at every corner. He reordered things. He recreated things back to the way things were meant to be in the garden where they were good, where there was no sin, where there was no illnesses, where there was no sicknesses. He was reordering and recreating things. That's why he was taking a leper and touching them, someone unclean and making them clean. Jesus was not following the the culture norms or society, but he was also not breaking them to be cool and be a renegade. The religious had missed the mark. Society had missed the mark. We have missed the mark so far that Jesus was coming in and showing this is what love is actually supposed to look like. He taught women. Unheard of. He touched the unclean. He hung out with the poor. He hung out with the religious. Jesus was a friend of sinners. No one encountered Christ and came out the same. Who was he, though? A lot of times in our culture, people say, I believe in Jesus. He was just a good teacher. No, he was not just a good teacher. In fact, if you think that Jesus was only a good teacher, he would actually be a lying lunatic. Because that's not who even Jesus professed to be. In fact, that's why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Who did Jesus profess to be? Multiple things. He, he professed to be the Lord of the Sabbath 
which meant that he was God of the Sabbath. They knew what that meant. That's why they were picking up stones to kill him. He actually said that I have the power to forgive sins. No one makes that claim except God himself. Not just that, but he makes subtle comments like this. Oh yeah, when Satan, uh, I saw Satan fall from the earth. And the disciples were like, okay. Yeah. Before all of this was created, I actually saw Satan fall. Who else? Jesus never stooped to say this. Thus saith the Lord. He only said, truly, truly, I say unto you. Why? Because God was speaking in the flesh. Who was he? He was God in the flesh. He was God. If you want to know what God the Father is like, read the Gospels. Because you get to behold who he is and you see that in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. He's incredible. And whether you hate him or love him, whether you reject him, you do have to be willing today to admit this, even if you're a non-Christian in this room, that there is not a greater name, a more known name in all of human history than Jesus Christ. I mean, he split time in half. We have before Christ and we have what? A.D. Yeah, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. That's who, from the start, Jesus is. What else do we know? Well, we know something by looking at his life versus looking at other lives. Like Genghis Khan, like Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar and Nero, who were all so-called great conquerors or emperors, that all, listen, they all became great off the backs and bloodshed of others. Jesus Christ only became exalted and great off carrying a cross on his back and off his own personal bloodshed. That's who Jesus Christ was. We'll get back to more of what he did in just a moment, but I will say this in, in closing at looking at Jesus Christ. Do you know that, that Christianity is extremely narrow? It's extremely narrow. In fact, we say there's only one way to God the Father, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. So narrow. But when you look at a, a society like Rome in the first century, people would have been like, they're awesome. They're, they're, they're pluralistic. What does that mean? All, they're like all-inclusive. It means that there's many ways to find the God of your choice and stuff like that. But here's the thing. Do you know that the Romans were baffled by Christianity? Why? Why were the Romans baffled at Christianity? Here's the reason why. Because though it was narrow, Christians hung out with different classes of people. The poor were hanging out with the rich for the first time and they could not understand this. Women held equality alongside of a man. Classes were mixing. Socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and, and, and people from all different races and classes were being joined together. And what were they doing? Willing to give their lives for one another. So it's interesting that, 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 that the narrow way led to people willing to sacrifice and lay down their lives for others, yet the pluralistic way that's all-inclusive actually won't even mix races and won't, miss, won't mix classes at all. Jesus had people politically uh, that were zealots, so he had the equivalent of like liberals and, and, and conservatives. Why? Because they were able to unite around something greater than their political differences and backgrounds. Jesus Christ. So again, whether you accept or reject it, Jesus Christ gathered people from all around the world, the most diverse, eclectic group of people all together. And by that, the Romans were baffled. Why? Why did this happen? with something so narrow because at the center of Christianity is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. 
At the center of Christianity is, 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 is a man dying for those who, who hate him or despise him. And at the center of Christianity is a group of people that says this, that we can honestly look at our lives and say as sinners, we don't deserve to be called a saint. What we actually deserve is what he took on the cross. We all share that in common. Every person who's a Christian came the same way, understanding they're a sinner. And everyone walks away with the same exact title. Not pastor, not preacher, not anything else, not CEO, saint. Verse 2. To those, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. All right, Corinth. We're going to learn more about Corinth as we go, and so this will be brief. Corinth was a well-traveled trade city located in Greece. And it was located on the southern part of the Isthmus, which is a word I can't figure out how to say without a lisp. So bear with me. I think we have some pictures of it. I even got this really cool laser pointer just for this. I think it's cool. All right. It is going to be right in this area right here. Here's a large map where we have the Mediterranean basin. We would have Ephesus over here. And the next map is going to zoom, zoom us in a little bit. So here you have Corinth. You would have the Gulf of Corinth right here. Let me stabilize this thing. Here we go. The Gulf of Corinth here. Another Gulf right here. And this isthmus right here that connects northern and southern Greece is where people would travel north and south. But what would happen is sailors would come in this way and they would come across the land, which was a four-mile stretch to get in the uh, Saronic Gulf, I believe, is what this Gulf here is called. Why would they do that? Because for sailors to go this way was extremely dangerous, and it added 250 miles to their trip. So it was quicker to take, uh, take your boat out on land, travel across with wheels, and get into the next Gulf, or vice versa, going this way. Uh, it, it, there's a common saying that for those that traveled around this way, that a sailor would never make this route on this peninsula unless he's first filled out his will. And so this is why Corinth was so popular. It was a trade and travel town. People north and south had to go through it and people going east and west here. The next uh, map just gives you a little bit more of a um, closer look at where Corinth is at. So that's why it's popular because of its location. What else do we know about Corinth? There were two athletic games held. One was uh, called the Isthmian Games and it was held here in Corinth. We also know that Corinth was made up of, of, of Greeks. It was made up of some Roman officials and Jewish people, which would have been normal because they were spread around the Mediterranean basin. We know that on the highest point of Corinth, it was actually a refuge place. In, in, in case the city was invaded, they had a place to go, but it was also the place of worship for the goddess of love called Aphrodite. And so if this isn't a man-made religion, I don't know what is. And so if you wanted to connect with the goddess of love called Aphrodite, then what you would do is you would have sex with one of the temple priests who were actually sex slaves, and that would help connect you to the goddess of love. Corinth was known for its moral depravity. In fact, there was a phrase and a saying that in a sense was to be Corinthianized. And what that meant is, is it meant to, uh, to live out of moral depravity. Or to say that you are now behaving like a Corinthian, which meant you had stooped to your moral lowest. That's what it was. So what happened? 
what happened is this, is that it became really hard to tell the difference between a sinner and a saint in Corinth. And that's, in a sense, what Paul is going to address in the rest of this letter. He's saying, Corinth is known for this, but you are not that. You are this. Though you live in Corinth, this is how you live as a saint in society. But from what everything I'm hearing, that's not the case. And so Paul is addressing these things. And to be honest, we're going to look at this next week. I would address things differently than what Paul did because of the stuff that's going on is like incest and uh, just, a, just a ton of moral depravity. And so that's what's going on. There's people that yet have they've been made a saint, no longer a sinner, but are still choosing to practice sin and live like that instead. Let's look here again at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Here's, it's talking about something that has happened to the church. The church being the ecclesia, the body, the gathering of God that is in Corinth. Paul's trying to pull us to a bigger view of church. Bigger than GCC. Bigger than Eugene. Bigger than the U.S. There's this global church of God that is centered around Jesus Christ. And he's saying, but to this church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be sanctified? Paul is saying, hey, to those of you that have already been made holy, I'm writing to you. To those of you who, who, who have been washed pure, who have been set apart, who have been cleansed, I'm writing to you. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say that you are sanctified by your moral efforts, by your good works, by anything that you have done. He says you are sanctified. You are made holy in Christ Jesus. That's it. You are not sanctified by your race, your class, anything else. You are made holy in Christ. Then he says this, called to be, here's our word, saints. In fact, it says saints together, and if this series title was something longer, then it would be saints together in society. But he says, you're called to be saints together. Notice he doesn't say you're called to do something. He says you're called to be something. And you're actually called to be set apart that Greek word, set apart. You're called to be the holy ones and you're called to do this together. Let me say a few things. Paul believes that the way to address the depravity that's going on in Corinth is not through behavioral modification. Not through a list of rules. Not through a 12-step process. Paul thinks the way and the greatest way to battle sin is to take people to the core foundation of who they are in their identity in Christ. That you are a saint that you are set apart, that you are holy. This is not a pious title that we earn by works. Unlike modern day thinking in Catholicism, this is not something you arrive at, an arrival status you gain or achieve. It is a title and identity given solely by the grace of God. Period. Positionally before God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You're set apart. You're holy. Now here's the thing. Saints don't always act like saints. Amen? Okay, like two of you. Good. So, so everyone else is awesome. So uh, to, to the two, saints don't always act like saints. What we do is, is we don't live like that. What we do is we practice sin. Though we practice sin, it doesn't change our core identity. What we are doing when we practice sin is this. Is we are failing to believe at the very depths of our soul and core who we are in Christ, that we're holy and that we're set apart. 
And so since what we're not believing is accurate, therefore our actions are living out of that. But our actions are not saving us. So we don't put our trust in how we've lived or how we've acted. We put our trust and faith in how Jesus lived and how He acted. And that's what makes us a saint. You see, this sinful nature is purchased. It's bought. It's ransomed. It's redeemed. In fact, Scripture... If, if you understand your identity in Christ, let me say it this way, if you're truly reading Scripture accurately and truly understanding, it, it, it makes you uncomfortable. Because it looks like we were crucified. It looks like we were buried with Christ. It looks like we were raised with Him. And it talks about God loving us as much as He loves His own Son. Listen, I, I will read these briefly, but Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We've been raised with him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The, the, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Ephesians 4.24 says, put off your old self. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. What does all this mean? That you're no longer it does. I'll be honest. It frustrates me when Christians identify themselves as sinners because you are no longer a sinner. You are a purchased, bought, redeemed, ransomed, washed clean, pure, and holy saint. And that is your identity and that is your nature. Yes, we believe we're a sinner, which impacts how we live. Sometimes we practice them, but at the core, your identity as a saint of one set apart does not change. Your, your old nature of sinner actually tries to come in as a cruel master would and tries to influence you. But your old cruel master of, of sinful nature can no longer own you. Christ does. And he's redeemed you and purchased you and set you apart as holy. I once heard a horrible story of a woman who was sexually abused most of her life by a relative. And the words that she commonly heard from him are you were a dirty girl and that's why you will do this. And she continued to, to live in that and continued to say that. And one day she told a pastor who asked her, why do you do what you do? And she said, because my relative told me I'm a dirty girl and it's what dirty girls do. And my hope and prayer for anyone that believes anything remotely close to that is this, is that in Christ, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what's been done to you, your, your core identity, the depths of your soul, is a saint who is set apart and holy, and Christ secures that holiness through his spirit. You are not what you've done. You are not what's been done to you. You are a saint, no longer a sinner. And who you are is a child of God, loved by God. I am not Rick, Son of Ron, I am not Rick from Roseburg. I am Saint Rick, child of the living God. And you can put saint in front of your name because at the core, that's who you are. Not sinner, saint in Christ. Knowing this affects the way that we live our lives. This is our greatest defense against sin. Now I'll say this in closing. Grace to you, as Paul says, in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to Peace is, a, peace is a result of grace. Let's say it that way. Peace is a result of grace, and the only way you can have deep peace is not through yoga, not through meditation, not through time away or anything else. Peace is a result of the grace of God grabbing hold of you and saying, you are mine and I will never let you go. True peace only comes from being reconciled to the one who created us. 
happens in Jesus. Now, the saint is now sealed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life in society that is set apart. That means when a saint goes into society, their life looks different. When a saint makes decisions about morality, their life looks different. When a saint goes into a bar, when a saint goes into anywhere, when a saint goes to school, when a saint goes somewhere, you are set apart. Ask the Spirit to get that truth into the depths of your, whole, uh, to, into the depths of your soul. Why? Because that truth penetrating to the depths of your soul will change the way you live, the way you see yourself. And the more you understand that you are holy and set apart as a saint, the more you will live like that in society. And so society looks in and goes, man, that's what it is to be a saint. That's what it is to love and serve and lay down your life for others. And they go, that's what it is to be set apart. And my hope and prayer for us as Gospel Community Church is that we would be saints set apart to live in society, especially here in downtown Eugene. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. Minister the realities of your word to the depths of our souls. Let us believe that we are no longer sinners, but we are saints. In Jesus' name, amen.